but uh, thought it was appropriate because what he just sang to us comes from Job chapter 14, which we'll be looking at today. As I told you last week, uh, the Lord willing, next week we begin a series on the issue of uh, a biblical view of friendship. And uh, so this will be our last Sunday in Job for a while, I think, until the new year. Uh, and then uh, we'll come back to it. Here in Job uh, chapters 12, 13, and 14, we come to Job's response to Zophar's speech. And we looked at the first half last week, uh, today beginning in verse number uh, 17, uh, we will, of chapter 13, we will see uh, the second half of his response. The first half usually of Job's responses are to his friends, and then the second he speaks to God. Just to review quickly from last week, uh, Zophar's uh, speech against Job really seems to have awakened Job. I mean, we hear a new Job and he issues a series of complaints against his friends and um, his tone in many ways is quite sarcastic. They think they know so much that wisdom will die with them when in fact Job argues that God's creatures and his creation know what his friends know. They don't have some secret knowledge. Um, All creation knows that the hand of the Lord has done this. In his hand is the life of every creature. His friends have mocked him as one who dares to ask God why he is suffering. He also complains about their attitude toward his misfortune. Those who are not suffering oftentimes find it very difficult to share and to understand the pain of those who are suffering. And they also do not understand those who are suffering over a long term, the disdain with which other people look down on them. And as we saw last week, those who are disabled oftentimes find that people who are not disabled look at them as though they are crippled throughout their whole person and not just that one particular infirmity. And so while Job is suffering, uh, he is not suffering mental problems, if you wish, but Zophar calls him an empty-headed donkey. He complains because they have not listened to him. They are too busy talking and trying to straighten him out. What Job wants is for them to be quiet. He wants their loyalty, not their advice. He wants them to be like they were those first seven days when they just sat there with him in solidarity. Also, he complains because in speaking for God, which is always sort of a scary proposition, they have misrepresented God. They have falsely represented him. And Job refers to them as, as worthless, as worthless physicians who really, in a sense, whitewashed the problem. And Job asks them a series of questions in chapter 13, verses 7 through 9. And it boils down to one. Do you feel that you have to defend God? And do you feel that it is okay or is it necessary to use lies and deception in order to get your point across about what God is doing? So he's unhappy with his friends. Then we saw last week in verse number 15, uh, Job's amazing affirmation of faith. Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. Job will not let go in spite of all that he is experiencing. I mentioned last Sunday that many people quote Job 13.15 to declare their unswerving faith in God. But they are not where Job was. They do not speak from physical pain or psychological despair. 
social rejection and spiritual condemnation. And I think Job's situation makes his statement so powerful that in spite of it all, he will not let go. Today we begin in verse 17 of chapter 13. And in these verses, Job, in a sense, turns his back, not in a bad way, but he is no longer addressing his friends. He is now addressing God. And what on one level seems to be a newfound strength and confidence. Follow along, if you would, as I read verses 17, 18 and 19. Listen carefully to my words. Let your ears take in what I say. Now that I have prepared my case, I know I will be vindicated. Can anyone bring charges against me? If so, I will be silent and die. Job is ready. He's ready for this this dialogue that he wants to have happen with God. But before that can happen, he requests that two conditions be met in verses 20 through 22. Only grant me these two things, O God, and then I will not hide from you. Withdraw your hand far from me and stop frightening me with your terrors. Then summon me and I will answer or let me speak and you reply. Job wants to speak to God. He wants to make his case. But there are two things he feels are necessary before he can do this. First of all, he wants to be relieved of his misery. I mean, just the sheer agony physically, emotionally, spiritually that he's gone through is going through, makes it very difficult to sort of put two words together, you know, form a sentence. He wants to be relieved of the misery, and then he's already ready, but then he can make his case before God. And then, interestingly, he asks that God would stop frightening him with his terrors. And we saw this earlier in the book of Job, that apparently Job was not only experiencing these various things, but at nighttime would have nightmares. And at least from Job's point of view, these were not simply you know, the result of his physical condition, but that God himself was sending these nightmares, these terrors to torment him at night. For Job, you know, God did not merely afflict him physically, but God is playing mind games uh, with him. And, and he, if God will just hold off for a while, then Job can make his case. And, and if God will do this, then, then Job is willing either to be the plaintiff or the defendant. Either he will make his case or he will sit there and listen to God make his case. We've seen this time and time again, but what troubles Job the most, not the physical pain, not the loss of his ten children, not even the betrayal of his three friends. What troubles him most is that God appears to be a monster, someone quite different than what Job had believed in all these years. And, and Job, I think, is terrified that there's a possibility that he has put his faith in the wrong person. He has put his faith in Jehovah, and, and maybe he should have put his faith elsewhere. Let's, begin, let's continue reading in verse number 23. How many wrongs and sins have I committed? Show me my offense and my sin. Why do you hide your face from your head, your face and consider me your enemy? Will you torment a windblown leaf? Will you chase after dry chaff? We've seen this again before. Job seems to be repeating himself. But he wants to know why God is doing these things to him. And again, parenthetically, 
There is no question in Job's mind, mind that what he is experiencing, God is the one doing this. Okay? Job is not saying uh, Satan did this to me or some evil spirit has done this to me. For him, God is the one doing this. Why is God doing this? Why is God considering him his enemy and treating him? It's like a windblown leaf. I mean, why bother with a leaf that can be blown away? Why does God bother? In modern psychological terms, it has been argued that Job is suffering from paranoia. Uh, paranoia is a mental disorder in which a person believes that others are against him or her. It is an abnormal tendency to distrust or mistrust others. Let me read you a quote. Job is in an anxious state with a considerable element of paranoia. He is being persecuted. He finds God terrifying. He is on the, age, on the edge of non-being looking over into the abyss. Why is God doing this to him? Why is God spending so much energy on him? I mean, why not just kill him? I mean, God created the world in six days. He can certainly get rid of Job in a matter of days. I mean, his, his suffering has been going on for some time. One writer describes Job's condition as having or consisting of persecutory anxiety and argues that paranoia is taking over. But can we blame Job? His friends have turned against him. And if you can't imagine what this is like, then just in your mind, think of the three persons closest to you, your three closest friends. And how would you think if these friends turned against you? In your hour of need. How would you feel if they not only turned against you, but they blamed you for your problems? They said, it's your fault that these things have happened. So his friends have turned against him. And his God seemingly has turned against him. No wonder Job is paranoid. I think a little paranoia or maybe a lot of paranoia is to be expected. Job has been described by God as blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. But let's not forget that Job is a man. He is a human being. And with all of these things that have assaulted him, I think we should not be surprised that this is what he feels. Now we come to the part that John was just singing to us. It begins in chapter 13, verse 26, and goes through chapter 14, verse 12 in which it speaks of the frailty of humanity. How frail we are as human beings. For you write down bitter things against me and make me inherit the sins of my youth. You fasten my feet in shackles. You keep close watch on all my paths by putting marks on the soles of my feet. So man wastes away like something rotten, like a garment eaten by moths. Man is born of woman, is few of days and full of trouble. He springs up like a flower and withers away. Like a fleeting shadow, he does not endure. Do you fix your eye on such a one? Will you bring him before you for judgment? Who can bring what is pure from what is impure? No one. Man's days are determined. You have decreed the, numbers, the number of his months and have set limits he cannot exceed. So look away from him and let him alone till he has put in his time like a hired man. At least there is hope for a tree. If it is cut down, it will sprout again, and its new roots will not fail. Its new shoots will not fail. Its roots may grow old in the ground, 
and its stump die in the soil. Yet at the scent of water, it will bud and put forth shoots like a plant. But man dies and is laid low. He breathes his last and is no more. As water disappears from the sea or a riverbed becomes parched and dry, so man lies down and does not rise till the heavens are no more. Men will not awake or be roused from their sleep. Assuming that God will accept Job's two conditions, Job, in a sense, presents his outline case. And it may be trying to fit it in too closely, but I would argue that what Job does in his argument is look at the past, the present, the future, and then we will see in a few minutes beyond into eternity. The past we find in verse 26 uh, of chapter 13 when he talks about God making him inherit the sins of his youth. That God has not forgotten the things that Job did before and now Job is suffering the consequences of that. And then he talks about the present. And this, I think, uh, might be a stretch, but when he talks about man being born of woman and, and their days are few, he's talking about the, the reality of the frailty of human life. We are here for such a short time. We are born into this world and we live here um, and like a shadow, uh, we're gone. Like wildflowers that spring up because of a spring rain and they die, that is what it is like to be human. At least with a tree, you can cut down the tree and if the stump is there, and it finds water, it will sprout again. And that's not the way it works with us. When we're dead, we're dead. And in this, I think Job addresses the future, because Job's not dead yet. Uh, he has been suffering a lot of things, and I think he wishes he were dead. But he is not yet dead. And he puts his case before God and, say, and says, Why have you done this? I'm like a leaf. I'm a human being who is here for such a short time. I'm not like a tree that you cut it down and it can sprout again. I'm a human being. When I die, I'm gone and that's it. Why are you doing these things to me? But Job doesn't stop there, amazingly enough. In verse 13, he continues and he says, If only you would hide me in the grave and conceal me until your anger or till your anger has passed. If only you would set, a, set me a time and then remember me. If a man dies, will he live again? All the days of my hard service, I will wait for my renewal to come. You will call and I will answer you. You will long for the creature your hands have made. Surely then you count my steps, but not keep track of my sin. My offenses will be sealed up in a bag. You will cover over my sin. Job looks beyond the grave. And he asks the question, if a man dies, will he live again? Well, for those of us who live after the coming of Jesus, we will today remember his death. We also know about his resurrection. We know about him saying to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. The question, if a man dies, will he live again? For us, is a no-brainer. Of course, such a person, I mean, all human beings will be resurrected at the last day. And because of where we are, I think we find it difficult to appreciate this question. From what we can tell, 
at the time that Job lived in the Old Testament, people had no conception of the resurrection. God slowly but surely opened his revelation. He didn't tell them everything at once. And the idea of resurrection, Daniel sort of hints at. He's one of the last prophets. But it is Jesus who tells us about the resurrection. So when Job asked the question, if a man dies, will he live again? If he took a poll, 100% would say no. Human beings are not resurrected. They will not live again. They're not trees. You can't cut them off and they come back. When a person dies, that's it. They're like wood that rots. We're food for the worms, if you wish. And yet Job, without any sign of hope, wants God to do this for him. To kill him and put him in the grave and leave him there until God's anger has cooled, till it has passed. And then for God to raise him from the dead. If God will remember him and seek him out and reveal his transgressions. Job is willing to wait in the grave for his resurrection. But I'm really struck as someone who believes in the resurrection because I have the words of Jesus. I'm really struck by how that Job's view of the resurrection is quite different, I think, than many people today. His faith is very practical. It is not utopian or romantic or unrealistic. Job is not looking to be resurrected to somehow live in paradise or Shangri-La or something like that. Job wants to be resurrected so that he can have conversations with God, that he can have a mutual relationship with God. And this is found in verse 15. You will call and I will answer you. You, that is God, will long for the creature your hands have made. Job doesn't want to be resurrected to live a pain-free life. He doesn't want to be resurrected to have a life where nothing goes wrong. He wants to be resurrected so that he can have a relationship with the Creator. That's what he wants. And I would suggest to you, and I will mention in the conclusion, that that's not what most people think about when they think about resurrection. In fact, I find it more and more the case that most people think about resurrection without God. They want to be resurrected and be in heaven and, and, and not have any pain, live forever. But the idea that the primary purpose of resurrection is for us to be engaged with a relationship with God, I, I don't know that that really is a primary concern for so many Christians today. So Job is waiting. He will wait for the resurrection. But in the meantime, we continue reading in verse 18 to the end of the chapter. I think we could argue that not only is Job paranoid, but that Job is severely depressed. But as a mountain erodes and crumbles, and as a rock is moved from its place, as water wears away stones and torrents wash away the soil, so you destroy man's hope. You overpower him once for all and he is gone. You change his countenance and send him away. If his sons are honored, he does not know it. If they are brought low, he does not see it. He feels but the pain of his own body and mourns only for himself. I'm not a psychologist and 
don't necessarily put a lot by psychology. Um, I would just, I, I think that what we see in Job is someone who is struggling with paranoia. Everyone has turned against him. Um, I remember years ago hearing someone say, just because I'm paranoid doesn't mean people aren't against me. Uh, he is paranoid, and it seems that God's against him, and so are his friends. But I also think that he is severely depressed. And again, who can blame him for all the things that he has gone through? Verse number 22, I think, is the key. He feels but the pain of his own body and mourns only for himself. I think it is one of the features of depression that people become totally self-absorbed. They really cannot see beyond their own predicament. Depression, it has been argued, is one of the worst pains a human being can face. A dark blackness that comes over the mind and soul. And when you're in pain, whether it be physical, emotional, mental, spiritual, I think after a period of time, your focus is not what's going on in the world, but what is happening to you. And as someone who has been reminded again about pain, uh, find I'm not as loving and sweet to my wife, a bit abrupt for all her suggestions, because I'm in pain and I'm thinking about me, okay? Because I hurt, and and I think this is where Job is on some level. Um, people who are depressed can exhibit different symptoms. Uh, they can lose sleep or sleep too much. They can lose their appetite or eat too much. There can be lethargy, a lack of motivation, sometimes just uncontrolled weeping. And I think that these symptoms reveal a pain that many times is unbearable. I cannot describe to you the pain that I experienced yesterday. And a person who is depressed, I don't think, can adequately put into words what they are going through. There are different causes for depression. We now know that uh, one of the causes is a chemical imbalance, that within the body things are not working right, and so a person becomes depressed. It can also be a reactive condition. That is, circumstances outside a person, in a sense, have conspired against the person, and the response is to be depressed. It can also be a spiritual response to moral guilt, to true moral guilt, when someone has done something they know they should not have done. In each case, the, the solution is different. If you have a chemical imbalance, we now have certain medications that can help to correct that. Um, if you are depressed because of true moral guilt, then you need forgiveness. You need to be restored. What if the circumstances are outside the person that cause a, a person to react? Well, oftentimes, there may be nothing that we can do. If a person uh, is suffering physically and the doctors can't do anything and they become depressed, I think perhaps all we can do is to stand with them or to sit with them. It's not to suggest well, you have a chemical imbalance or... You have moral guilt. Marie mentioned it last Sunday in Sunday school. Unconfessed sin. I mean, no wonder Job's friends are so wrong in the suggestions that they make. They are treating him as though the cause of his depression is real moral guilt. He has sinned against God. That's not why he's depressed. He's depressed because he lost all ten children. He's lost all his possessions. 
He, physically, his health is devastated, but beyond that, God is silent. And his friend's advice would be as, as outrageous as it would be for us to suggest to him, Job, you just need some Prozac. That's what you need, and then you'll be fine. Some people need Prozac because they have a chemical imbalance. That's not his problem. And thus, his friend's advice is, is so bad. They have not been listening to him. They've been so busy defending their own theological position. They are convinced that Job is suffering what he deserves. And so we come to the end of this first cycle of speeches. And we find a man who is not only paranoid, but really depressed. And we shouldn't be amazed that he is but we should also remember that he will not let go. He will not let go. Let me wrap this up and just say that I am in this section. Um, when I was preparing last Sunday or for last Sunday sermon, uh, I was going to be, say in my introduction, this is a very familiar passage of Scripture. And then I realized what's well, familiar because of John's uh, work uh, from Job 14. But certainly we do know the verse, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. But I am struck by Job's view of the resurrection in the face of no evidence for resurrection, but also his view of resurrection life. It is not about paradise. It is about conversations and about relationships. When you hear the words, I am the resurrection and the life, what comes to mind? How do you envision resurrection life? I've complained about this before, and so I will not complain too loudly, but really troubled by people whose, whose single most important fascination with heaven is that the streets are made of gold. And, I mean, what exactly excites you about that? That there's some huge heavenly mall and that we're all going to sort of chip away at the streets and go buy stuff? I mean, that almost seems to feed more toward our covetousness. Uh, streets made of gold. For Job, the most amazing thing that could happen was, would be for him to be resurrected and for God to long for him as much as he longs for God and to have a conversation with him. Today we remember Jesus' death. And I think if we think Jesus died just so we can live in a place where the streets have made, are made of gold... I think we've really sold his death short. Jesus died for us in order that we might enter into a relationship with him, with God the Father and God the Spirit. And that one day we will be in their presence and have dialogue and conversation. And that the surroundings in some ways will be secondary. The fact that our bodies will work the way they're supposed to will be secondary. The fact that we will never die again will be secondary. What will be primary is that we will be with God and have dialogue and conversation with Him. And this is because of what Jesus has done for us. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank You for Your servant, Job who in the midst of 
agony that we cannot begin to imagine, not only physical, but emotional, having lost his children, having lost all his possessions, having lost his reputation. And then the agony of having his three friends turn against him. And then the pain of your silence. And yet in faith, he holds on and looks forward to the day when he could speak to you face to face. We know now the answer to his question, when a man dies, will he live again? We know the answer is yes, because of what Jesus has done. We remember his death today, but we can't do that without thinking of his resurrection. And when we think of his resurrection, the resurrection he will give us one day, we will spend eternity with you. May our hearts be filled with gratitude today as we remember his sacrifice. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.